morning, everyone. I want to jump right into our Bible passage for this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be starting with verse 4 and reading through verse 12. As you remember, this is a letter that was written in the first century A.D. to Christians who had fled from Italy and Greece to what is now modern-day Turkey to escape the deadly sadistic persecutions of the Roman Emperor Nero. They were displaced refugees, strangers in a strange land. Their world had been turned upside down, and yet they were trying to live out their faith in difficult and dangerous circumstances. And Peter is giving them a recipe for a life of hope in the middle of hard times. That recipe began with the recognition that no matter what happens, Jesus' grave is still empty and Christ is still Lord of all. Christ risen from the dead is the source of all our hope right now and on into eternity. And then Peter stirred in the encouragement to, to passionately pursue God by staying grounded in the Word of God, this great anchor for our souls that gives life stability when the waves come crashing in. And today Peter adds another ingredient to this recipe of a life of hope. The importance of belonging to Christ's new community, the church, which he describes as a building, a a living temple of which you are each individual stones and Christ himself is the cornerstone. Let me start with verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood through offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who puts trust in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone is The builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful sinful desires, which wage against war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Well, last summer when I was planning out this current message series on hope in a hard world, I really didn't anticipate that the topic would be so completely relevant. I mean, wow, the last two weeks have been unbelievable. Two years in a row now, we have been absolutely humbled by the power of nature. And then you throw in all the drama surrounding the presidential election, And boy, do we need the hope of Christ, a sense of of God's presence and God's power over our lives and over our future. Because without some sense of hope, it would be easy for people to just kind of give up and throw in the towel. And you know you, you can't do that. 
I was actually in Bolivia with our mission team when Hurricane Sandy hit New Jersey last week. And I can tell you, I never felt so helpless. All we could do was text and try to follow the storm online, but with the power out, communication was, was pretty hit or miss. And so we were worried. And really, one of the most touching moments of that whole mission trip came in one of the daily chapel services at the Amistad Orphanage when the children asked if they could pray for us, if they could pray for our families and friends and our church in New Jersey. I mean, these children who, who have so little, yet they also have the hope of Christ, and they wanted to care for us through prayer. It's pretty special. Well, we got home from Bolivia Monday morning at about 4 in the morning, and the very first thing the person said who was picking us up was, Welcome to the new New Jersey. And that's what it is, a new New Jersey. I came home to a flashlight by the front door so that I could navigate through a cold, dark house. I think we're all still trying to deal with the aftermath of the storm, especially those who are yet without power or those who have suffered a significant loss. And a couple of things were repeated to me in my conversations with people this past week. First, people did seem to recognize the, the difference between being inconvenienced and experiencing real suffering. Losing power and heat and the internet isn't really the end of the world, though after 13 days uh, things start to feel a little thin. It's hard, it's a nuisance, but we learn to cope with things. Uh, it's a disruption, but a temporary disruption of our normal lives. We're resilient people. We can manage. And we can be grateful it wasn't worse because we do know that there are people, friends and neighbors, who did sustain real loss and are experiencing real suffering. People in our region around us who are in deep trouble. And our hearts go out to them. I know our missions folks are looking at practical ways that we can respond as a church, much like we did in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, a focused response. But that leads to the second thing I heard many folks sharing with me, the wonderful way people came together to help each other after the storm. Chainsaws and soup, generators and warm blankets, a place to sleep or just a simple cup of coffee. People who didn't even know each other were helping each other out. Over and over, folks are talking about how this kind of a storm really brings out the best in people. Because most of the time in our suburban lifestyle, we, we rarely even see our neighbors. We're somewhat isolated in our individual houses and our cars and our complicated schedules. A family can move in or out of your neighborhood, and you might not even know about it for weeks at a time. We're often disconnected from our geographic neighbors. Our friendships aren't necessarily based on who lives near us. They're based on other things. But the storm forces us out of our suburban isolation into at least a temporary kind of caring and community. And people liked it. I think people sense that we're missing something in our overscheduled lives, something good, something that contributes to a, a happier, a healthier, a more hope-filled life, something we need more of, real community, real community. Back in 1995, a sociologist named Robert Putnam wrote a great book called Bowling Alone, where he kind of describes the decline in the sense of community in America, that people are increasingly becoming 
more isolated and detached, more distrustful, more kind of disengaged from the places where they live and the people who live there. He cites a lot of possible reasons for this, more women in the workplace, the the transient nature of our jobs, people moving in and out all the time, the breakdown of the traditional family unit, and other demographic and technological shifts. And he contends that, that just from a human secular point of view, we need a healthy sense of community because it's essential to our personal well-being. The desire for community is really the desire to answer the question, you know, where, where do I fit in? Where do I belong? Or better yet, to whom do I belong? Our self-identity is significantly defined by the groups that we belong to, and that's how I know who I am. That's how you know who you are, by what communities or groups you're a part of. That's how we know who we are. We were not born to live in isolation, and I think the Bible teaches that very thing. There is a powerful drive within each of us to be a part of something larger than ourselves, to be part of a community. And how we do that as followers of Jesus, well, that's something very unique. Let me explain a little bit what I mean. Traditionally, throughout history, the sense of community was based on one or more of these five things, your clan, your color, your class, a cause, a a crisis. Those five things. Your clan, I mean, that's simple enough. That's the people you're related to. In most generations, that was the first group that you would affiliate with. In more ancient times, people lived in villages where they were all related to one another in some kind of an extended way. The clan, the tribe, the village, that was your group, and the clan often had to fight against other clans just for survival. And even though our family ties are still important, our mobile society has really kind of broken up the clan as the primary source of community. You're still in relationship, but your family could be scattered over a thousand miles. Uh, You can connect with them over the internet, over the phone, but they're not the ones who are going to help you bail out your basement when the storm comes. They're just too far away. Well, color or ethnicity, that's also been a way people have defined their community. Color or ethnicity is actually the easiest way to differentiate, differentiate yourself from someone else. It's easy to know who's in and who's out, and so in negative ways, that comes out as racism. One race feeling superior, acting superior to another race. It can come out as as prejudice or discrimination. But on the positive side, we want to retain our our sense of of ethnic heritage. Uh, People define themselves as being, you know, Polish-American, African-American, Korean-American, and so on. We have Irish parades and Puerto Rican parades, and we don't consider those to be inherently racist. But there is a sense of exclusion if you're not of that color or ethnicity. It's a homogenous group. Everybody is the same, and that can lead to conflicts with other ethnic groups. The terrible genocide between the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda in 1994, where 800,000 people were killed in the course of 100 days, was all because of ethnic hatred. That's how community based on race, can go wrong. 
Well, economic class is another. People use wealth to sort of define their community. It used to be sort of the landed gentry versus the working class. Now it's more about how much we earn and trying to be one up on the next guy. And this kind of comes out in many not-so-subtle ways. How many of you have ever had this kind of a conversation? You live in what town? Oh. And immediately you know that that person has categorized you downward. You're beneath them. You know, this is so strong in our neck of the woods. People define themselves by this unspoken economic caste system where what matters is the logo on your obscenely expensive purse or the medallion on your car. And it goes the other way, too. Think of how class warfare was used in the recent presidential election. People were pummeled with ads designed to get them to to hate millionaires because, you know, they're all greedy, selfish snobs. You know, who you hate, that also can define your community. Well, people can find community through a cause, something that they're committed to. It could be anything from a, a sports team to, a, to a, a, a favorite charity or a street gang. Think of the tailgate parties before a Jets or a Giants game. People who have maybe nothing else in common, yet they come together, they're wearing the same colors, and they're cheering the same cheers. And heaven help you if you wear a Red Sox jersey to a Yankees game. Think of all the differing people who were wearing pink during October in support of breast cancer awareness because that's an important issue to them. It creates a sense of community. Political parties and and, uh, special interest groups all to come together in this way. Even nations can put aside differences to rally around a cause. Think of the USA and Russia during World War II. These two nations came together to defeat a greater enemy in Hitler's Germany. And then when that was done, they turned on each other. And that's the problem with building community around a cause. It's often a very temporary allegiance. As soon as the game is over, the marathon is finished, or the war is won, other things take precedent. Causes can bring people together, but when the cause fades, so does the community. And that brings us to crisis. Though in the moment, crisis can bring out the best in people, there is this burst of community. A crisis is actually the weakest way for community to happen in the long run because crisis can't sustain community. The crisis will pass. People will go on with their lives. We have this way of returning to our normal routines. Maybe we say hello a little more often or we know a few more names But chances are we don't really develop any deeper relationships with people that we didn't know before the crisis happened. It can happen, but generally folks revert back to their default way of living. And that brings us to a different kind of community. A community not based on clan or color or class or a cause or even a crisis, but a community based solely on Jesus Christ. And Christ alone. You see, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he only left behind two things the Holy Spirit and a group of people. A group of people who were supposed to relate to each other in in a way that the world had never seen before. A kind of community that was supposed to transcend all the other ways people had come together. They were to come together united solely around their life-transforming relationship with Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
They were to be his body, a living temple, as Peter describes it in this morning's Bible passage, a church. And that word church originally didn't have anything to do with a, with a building with a steeple on top or a room filled with stained glass windows. Ecclesia, that's the Greek word. It literally means a group of people who were called out by God, called out of their old way of life to a new way of living, called out of their old allegiances to a higher allegiance to Jesus Christ, called out to create a new fellowship, a new society, a new community that was different from how the world tried to do it. Theologian John Stott puts it this way, the very purpose of Christ's self-giving on the cross was not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate their loneliness, but to create a new community whose members would belong to him and who would love one another and eagerly serve the world. This community of Christ would be nothing less than a renewed and reunited humanity of which he would be the head. It would incorporate Jews and Gentiles on equal terms. In fact, it would include representatives of every nation. And from the day of Pentecost onwards, it has been clear that conversion to Christ means also conversion to the community of Christ. As people turn from themselves to him, from this corrupt generation, to the alternative society which Jesus is gathering around himself. These two transfers of of personal allegiance and social membership cannot be separated. In other words, when you put your faith in Christ, it means you not only have a new relationship with God, but you also have a new community where you belong. This community is God's people. The Apostle Paul describes this new community in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. So in Jesus Christ, you are all children of God through faith, for you all have been baptized into Christ and have been clothed yourselves with Christ. And so there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Neither Jew nor Gentile. It's not a community that's based on clan or color or ethnicity. If you're a Christian, then there's something more important than your race or your ethnic history. You share Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of your lives. Neither slave nor free. It's not a community based on economics or social status. And do you understand how radical that statement was in the first century where slavery was considered absolutely normal and formed the basis for their entire economy? And here comes the Christian faith saying, slave and slave owners, guess what? You're on the same level before Christ. You're brothers and sisters in Christ. No difference before God. Now, putting that into practice was going to be hard, but it really would shake things up. Neither male nor female. That, too, was revolutionary in a society where women were considered the property of their husbands or their fathers. In Christ, no, everyone is to be treated with the same respect and honor. This Christian community was to be something very different from what the world had ever seen, a community based on this new identity that comes from your belonging to Jesus. And it's open to everyone, everyone who will surrender their old identity to Christ and begin a new life by His grace. In Colossians 3, Paul puts it this way, 
Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and is in all. Jesus is the glue that holds this new community together. He is the cornerstone upon which this living temple is built, a new community based on his command that we should love one another. One of the great things that I've had the opportunity to experience as I've traveled to places like Africa and India and South America and all over the place is that when you meet a fellow Christian, there is this instant rapport, an instant bond, a level of friendship that transcends just your common humanity, that transcends all the differences of race or culture or language because you sense the Holy Spirit in each other. Halfway around the world in places you can't even pronounce and you find yourselves among your primary community, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what Christ intended for his people. You know, somebody asked me, you know, why should we be concerned about, you know, some women in Bangladesh and their sewing center, you know, for our Thanksgiving offering? There are needs closer to home. Well, uh, that's true. There are always needs in our region. Anywhere you look, there are enormous needs, even before Hurricane Sandy. Just walk the streets of Newark or Patterson. We could pour all of our mission dollars into those places and not even make a dent. But the truth is, is that those women in Bangladesh or our sisters in Christ and God in His providence has brought us together with them because they need our help. And we recognize that because our Christian community isn't limited by geography, we can actually be united with them. If we don't help them to find a way to escape their poverty, who else is going to? And we have plenty of opportunity to help those around us, believe me. But this idea of community in Christ is absolutely so important. I'm going to have to continue on this topic next week starting with verse 12 to talk about how authentic community really brings credibility to our witness. But the main thing I want you to take away today is that if you are a Christian, not only do you have a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but you also have a new relationship with others who are following him as well. You are a brick in God's spiritual house. You are a part of his chosen people. You are one of his royal priesthood, his holy nation. You have a home in Christ's new community. And I hope that as you experience community within the, 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 the context of, of this church, that you would find that to be a source of hope and encouragement and power for living today and throughout this week. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you've called us not just to a, a new vertical relationship with you, but to this, this wonderful horizontal relationship with other people, this fellowship, this, this group, this community that's centered on you. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to go through life alone, that there are people who are going to, to love us who, who may not even look like us or talk like us or dress like us, but that we are all one through our commitment to Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we can be a force in the world for good, a force in the world for love because we are united around you. Help us to really live out this reality of being a new community in Jesus Christ. For it's in your name we pray.